Well, hey, good morning. Welcome to La Jolla Community Church. So glad you can join us this morning for some worship. We're going to get started with some worship. Um, if you're able, please stand and uh, let's sing. from his hand till he 
returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I stand.
You may be seated. Heavenly Father, you are worthy of all our praise because of who you are. Love continually poured out and without end. You are the Holy One, the Father of mercies, God of all comfort. All might is yours and you never change. The beauty of nature that surrounds us here is your creation. You give us glimpses of your magnificence. Thank you that you want us to know you and you allow us to know you and you call us yours. Thank you for giving us your word so we can know you. Your word never changes because you never change. With so much around us changing so fast, we have unchanging truth. We have unchanging you. Thank you. Many things weigh on us or worry us, but in all of it, you reign. You reign. None of it worries you. None of it has caught you unprepared. We praise you for who you are. This is our hope. You allow us to hunger because you want to feed us. And you feed us on who you are and on your word. Your word that says, I have been with you wherever you have gone. And it says, I am with you always. Thank you for Pastor Steve. Provide for him in every needed way. Your word tells us, let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. And let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Amen. Welcome to La Jolla Community Church. If this is your first time joining us for our worship service, we are so glad that you are here. On your way in, you should have received a bulletin. On there, you will find our Connect card. If you are looking to get connected with the church, we encourage you to fill out that Connect card so we can get to know you. If you have new contact information, please fill out that Connect card so we can keep you updated. On the other side, you will find our prayer card. If you have anyone in your life who is in need of prayer, please fill out the prayer card or visit our website at ljcc.org prayer. On your way out, you can drop these cards off in the foyer or the box mounted on the wall. Here at LJCC, we want to walk together in our journey of seeking after God. If you are just beginning in your faith, desire a deeper connection with God, or simply curious about the Christian walk, then please join us for our worship and prayer night, an intentional time devoted to praising our Lord. Our worship and prayer night will take place this Thursday, July 20th at 6.30 p.m. There will be songs, prayer, and a time to meet with others. Let's worship the Lord together. We hope you enjoy the rest of our worship service. Hey, well, good morning. Uh, welcome to summer. It's so weird to see the sun out and blue sky. I didn't know what to do. I thought, oh, it's awesome. Um, I, the other day, I, I was, I was uh, in the backyard and I was studying, and it was, it was the most amazing thing to have these, I don't know what they were, F-16, 18, some of these planes. They were so loud, and there were so many of them roaring overhead. And I, all I could think about was, would it be great to be 22 and in that cockpit? You know, the, when you feel really alive and uh, you just have 
um, a sense of where you want to go and what you want to do. Uh, I hope you're feeling that right now, no matter what age or stage you're in. I hope you have a sense that, you know, the, the best of my life is not behind me, and the best of my life is not ahead of me. The best of my life is what God is doing in my life right now. You might be recovering from some of the things on the past, or uh, you are preparing for what's next, but to live in the past or the future is to miss the present. We already know that. Everybody knows that. Then why don't we do something about it? Because it's so distracting to live in the present. It's so distracting to live in the present. Why? Because if we're uncomfortable in the present, uh, we just want to go somewhere else with it. And we want to maybe distract ourselves. We want to self-medicate ourselves. So why am I talking about this? Um, because I'm, I'm asking the question of myself this summer, what do disciples of Jesus do while they're doing everything else? If you're a disciple of Jesus, you might say, well, I don't even understand that term. It's sort of a weird term to me. If you are a person who's fully alive in Christ, that is, you have said to God, I actually understand that you love me and want me to be in a relationship with you. Okay, uh, put me in, coach. Uh, the word that the Bible uses for that is disciple. And that's an old-fashioned word, and you wonder, well, why don't we just call it a learner? Some people call it an apprentice. But we keep holding on to this word disciple because it, it says so much more than just hanging out with Jesus. Jesus calls us his friend. So part of this new life in Christ is hanging out with Jesus. Spending time, and it's usually quiet because you're on your own. No matter what the environment is, you're reading, you're reflecting, you're praying. And then he pulls you into these relationships, and he pulls you into these situations. Uh, and so this idea of being a disciple is that anything God is doing in your life is, is content for him developing your life. What God does in our life is develop our life. And you might think, well, I, I'm not really feeling that or seeing that. And that's the topic that we're talking about today. Uh, Scott Schimmel, the last couple weeks, has been preaching. He talked about being uh, self uh, reliant. Actually, he talked about resilience. He talked about preparedness. Because one of the things we want to do is unpack, well, so what does it look like to be a, a disciple of Jesus? We're not saying, oh, to be a disciple of Jesus means we withdraw from the world. And with, we withdraw from all the normative things that might be happening whatever age or stage you're in. Rather, we say, because we're disciples of Jesus, um, we ask the question, what do disciples of Jesus do while they're doing everything else? Your kid going to school. Uh, your person teaching in a school. Uh, you are a person in the marketplace. You're a person feeling shut out of the marketplace. You're a person who is trying to make a transition or change. And you say, well, how can I be a disciple of Jesus when I've got little kids at home and demanding employees or employers or whatever the issue might be? And so we're exploring that. And today we're going to look at it from the lens of self-awareness. What comes to your mind when you hear this word self-awareness? I don't know. Well, if you, have, if you start with, I don't know, we have a lot to talk about. Because self-awareness is simply saying, who am I and where am I? What am I feeling? What am I experiencing? And, and what does it mean to me? It's one of the most important practices or skills that a human, be human being can develop. One of the most refreshing things is to meet a self-aware person. Because they're not just about them. You know, they're not into self-absorption. Uh, they're not into self-denial. They're not into uh, self-delusion. Uh, what they're all about is saying, you know, I'm aware uh, of who I am and what I'm experiencing, and I'm curious, and I want to approach the world imaginatively. 
um, lots of times when a person goes to a counselor, the counselor will say, what are you feeling? And maybe the person will say nothing. And maybe with some coaxing, that person will finally have a torrent or a gushing out of, of emotions. And then the counselor will wisely say to them, those are emotions, but what are you feeling? How would you name those things? And oftentimes, especially for guys, they'll say, here's a list of feelings. Check all that apply for you. Um, most people will say, no, I have a list. It's, it's all the people I'm blaming for my emotions. It's all the situations that I'm blaming for my emotions. If they were just different, I'd be awesome. You know, and this is the big shock when people achieve their goals and their dreams. Oh no, now what? Because without self-awareness, you're saying, uh, I don't, there's really no there there. I don't know who I am or what I am. And now here's the biggest tragedy. When a person says, I have a faith in Christ, I believe in God, and I still feel this way. So one of the things that the Holy Spirit does in us, if we're open to it and responsive to God at a personal level, is he leads us into an understanding of who we are. And so uh, here, here's what it would sound like <clears throat> if you were a person saying, I, I want to be this follower, apprentice, learner, friend, partner with God in his work in the world. I, I guess it's a disciple I am. I, I don't like that term because it feels like I'm being you know, self-promoting or something. But okay, so I'm a disciple. How can I express that? Here's, here's how a disciple would express self-awareness. My true identity is rooted in Christ and his kingdom. Now notice I said rooted, not limited by. My identity is rooted in Christ and his kingdom. I'm learning to live into it daily and live out of it daily. I'm learning to live into it daily and to live it out daily. In Christ, I accept myself as one loved by God. Because Christ says it so, I'm accepting that I am loved by God. Now notice, I haven't said anything here about how did you feel? Or what are you doing with it? But just starting with this basic um, description, my identity is rooted in Christ and his kingdom. I'm learning to live into it daily and live it out daily. In Christ, I accept myself as one loved by God. And, and here's where the work comes in. I'm honest about my needs, wants, and desires. I'm honest about my needs, wants, and desires. Is it okay as a disciple of Jesus to have needs, wants, and desires? Well, yeah. Uh, substitute some other words. And I'm honest about my strengths and my weaknesses. It's easier to say, yeah, everybody has strengths and weaknesses. Is it okay to add in there, I'm honest about my lack of, my need for, you know. So what this does is it sets us up to say there's a larger context for our life that allows us to be, to be intentional and conscious about how we enter into our life. We can become students of our own life because we're being led by the one who is discipling us. So this is the premise about self-awareness as it relates to uh, what disciples of Jesus do while doing everything else. So let me ask you this question. <clears throat> Did Jesus' disciples live ordinary lives like everyone else? Because when you read the four gospels, man, they're doing all this stuff. Uh, these guys seem, never seem to be home, you know? Uh, they never seem to go to work or, or have anything they have to do. They're just doing stuff. But then we start paying attention to it and we realize, oh my gosh, you know, we're getting a very focused look at this. Uh, kind of like some of those great novels that focus on one day in a person's life. 
and all this, you know, 400 pages of one day in a person's life, you think, whoa, could we pull back and see the rest of their life? Actually, no, I don't have time. You know, I can't, I can't read that many pages. But when you look at the Bible, you start to get glimpses of what they were doing uh, while they were doing everything else. So did they live ordinary lives like everyone else? Yes, in an extraordinary way. Oh, yeah, that's right, yeah, okay, that's their out. Uh, that was their hall pass from the normal things everybody else does. They, had, they lived an extraordinary life. No, actually, what I mean is they lived an ordinary life from an extraordinary perspective. They lived it from the perspective that said, my identity is rooted in Christ and his kingdom. I'm learning to live into it daily and live it out daily. As I walk with Jesus, because in him I accept myself as one loved by God, and I'm honest about my needs, wants, and desires. What it says is, I'm being set free to be me. I'm being set free to be curious and to explore life thoroughly. I'm set free to say yes to things and no to things. To say I have needs, I have wants, I have desires. Uh, If you're doing this, keep doing this. If you're not doing this because you think it's sort of like extracurricular work that you don't get credit for, you don't want to go there, or you feel like you're too busy to do it, or maybe you don't feel worthy of doing it. I don't really have the right to that kind of life. That's for rich people, famous people, you know, people with a lot of time on hands. No, this is for people who want to be alive, who want to move from just existing day to day. You can do this in a prison cell. <clears throat> if we had the time, uh, we could visit prisons around the country, horrible, sad places. If you've never been to a prison, it's miserably depressing. By the way, do not wear blue if you go to a prison for a visit. They will not let you in if you're wearing anything blue. Uh, don't bring a cake with a file in it, especially. You know. um, but what you would find there, uh, uh, beyond imagining and much to your surprise, that there are people who say, this is right where God wants me to be. Well, it's also right where the federal government, the state of California, want me to be. But this is where God has met me and where God wants me to be because he's doing a work in me. And I'm going to be here for 40 more years. And I believe he wants to do a work in me that will then accomplish his work in other people. I'm going to have highs and lows and ups and downs. And sometimes I want to kill myself because it's too small of a space, too crazy of a situation. But I've never been more free. That is shocking. Now, you might say, well, that's what a person has to tell themselves in those circumstances. Fair enough. Until you start talking to these people in prison after prison after prison, and you go, there's a pattern here. There's something going on. These people are incredibly self-aware. They can tell you what they did, why they did it, and what they've learned from it. You don't have to go to prison to discover this. It's happening in junior highs. It's happening in elementary schools. It's happening in high schools. It happens at UCSD. It happens in all these life science buildings. There are people who are becoming alive in Christ saying, I finally understand what my calling is, is to be the greatest scientist I can in Jesus' name. And I might not get to talk about him at work, but I get to start to see that I'm, I'm engaged in the wonder of what he has created in a way that will bless people. So, you know, there's no end to where this goes. Uh, and so these ordinary disciples living an extraordinary life were simply living routines with a profound sense that each day is a gift from God. And that his love in them was somehow going to make a difference in the most horrifically hard situations and the most delightfully fun situations. And their, their, awareness, their awareness of Jesus' presence in their world shaped their decisions and gave them a larger purpose than all the other good purposes they might have. 
<clears throat> and it was the foundation for everything they believed and everything they valued and everything they did. You see, what we call this would be a worldview. Uh, the Germans had this long, fancy phrase, a Weltanschauung, this, this all-encompassing worldview. A meta-narrative, if you want to go there. And so they cultivated an authentic love for God and for one another. It wasn't utopian or idealistic. It was real. Real. What happens when things get real? They get messy. They get real messy is what they get. And so they thrived and they failed. One of the shocking things about reading the Gospels is you start with them thriving and immediately, like a chapter later, they're failing. Something horrible is happening. And then you get into Paul's letters and you think, this guy's going to have a nervous breakdown. You know, he's talking about people who are doing things in Jesus' name out of selfish ambition and envy and jealousy and, and plays for power. And at the end of the day, he said, you know, um, I can't solve that. All I can do is be faithful to what God has called me to do. God will sort the rest of it out. And that wasn't he, that he was pulling away. He said, you know, he was just realizing, I'm not the Lord of the universe. I'm simply a disciple walking with Jesus through his universe, trying to understand how to function with self-awareness in that situation. And of course, as they thrived and they failed, they recovered from failure through a realigning with God and with one another. So this is sort of the pattern. It's not that I meet Jesus and everything is awesome from then on. I meet the, that person that I want to spend my life with, and from then on, it's awesome. It's not, we have kids, and they're the most awesome kids. You know, if you had perfect kids, they'd move out. They go, I can do better. I can trade up. I can maybe, you know. So there's no perfect world, right? So what we end up doing is constantly aligning and realigning with God according to his purposes. And so what, what shaped their personal and communal values, their hopes, their dreams, their commitments? It wasn't wishful thinking. It wasn't a, the desire for a utopian outcome. Uh, what informed and transformed their missional roles and responsibilities? We see the outrageous things they did at every level in the society, as business people, as bureaucrats, as um, leaders of God's people, as people in the armed, in the armed forces, uh, as people in, in the world of education. What was driving them? Well, if we want to understand Jesus and ourselves and others, we need to understand it was all about what we call the gospel. It's all about the gospel. Now, you might have heard that term a lot, and you think, well, yeah, no doubt, everybody knows about the gospel. That's what churches do. That's what Christians do, the gospel. The fact is, we do not do the gospel. We have, especially in our country, we've sort of, get, we've, got, we've pulled off into a side channel where the water is a little stagnant, and we have this idea that it's about Jesus and me as an individual, and the rest of it is whatever. And I'm kind of on my own. I've got to make it work. And the gospel piece in that scenario is <clears throat> I went to a Billy Graham crusade and accepted Jesus. I went to Forest Home or a Young Life camp and accepted Jesus, and that's pretty much a done deal. And now what I do is I work out of my culture, my cultural sense of what's supposed to happen, and just I become alienated and isolated, and pretty soon I'm part of a, just another community that every once in a while invites God to show up to it. The gospel is so much bigger, so much more dynamic. I want to remind you about what it is. Now, Paul does this in his letter to people who lived in Corinth, in Greece. In his first letter, you see it in chapter 15, he's been writing all this stuff, and he stops, and he says, oh, wait, now, uh, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you 
of the gospel I preach to you. Now, some people have assumed that, well, Paul invented the gospel. He, he invented the narrative that talks about Jesus. Well, Jesus did this. Peter did this. Uh, there's a bunch of sermons throughout the book of Acts that are all about this. And Paul now, years into his walk with Christ, and years into um, helping to make disciples in other places, and now he's a Jewish guy as a Roman citizen helping people in Greece grow in their relationship with Christ. Corinth, a, a sophisticated city, a, an international city, a troubled, complicated city. Somebody has named you know, the letter to the Corinthians as the letter to the Californians. It's not a bad description. And, but he says here, I want to remind you of the gospel I preach to you. And look, here's who he's talking to, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. He's talking to the people already committed to it. Why would he be talking about the gospel that they already know and that they're already committed to? Because every day in Corinth, there were about 1,001 opportunities to make the gospel this, to veer off there, to make it about me, not about us, to make it about being a Corinthian, not a Greek, to make it about being a Greek, not a person from another uh, geopolitical place, another culture. This is what being a, a Christian is according to our gospel. And all of a sudden you go, wow, your gospel is different than the one in the guy in Syria, different from the one in the guy in Italy. Uh, I heard something different when I was in North Africa. You know, and all of a sudden there's all these little gospels. So Paul is really keen on saying, I want to remind you of the gospel. Because by this gospel you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preach to you, Otherwise, you have believed in vain. This became a very big deal in the early church. Well, Jesus is great and everything, but I think we need a little bit more. You know, this is great and everything, but I think we need to hold Jesus thing a little bit less. I, I um, moved here about 30 years ago, and I was in a church, and some people came up to me and said, love what you're doing, but a little bit too much Jesus, too much Bible. Like, wow, that's super helpful feedback. Thank you very much for that. By the way, have you ever read the Bible? Well, no, but I've been to 120 countries. Wow, what a great swap. You know, I mean, and I had no idea. Okay, you got a passport with a lot of busy stuff in it, but, and I didn't even know what that response was about. I said, that's fantastic. What did you learn when you were doing that? Oh, how awesome it is to add to the list. Oh, that's, you went really deep in those places, I'm sure. Well, I, but I've been a, in, in, you know, a, a religious person for my whole life. Wow. I'm just curious, have you ever read the Bible? And I didn't say it as an accusation, I just said it as a, you know, um, is this part of your quiver, you know? He goes, well, no, but you know, it's the Bible. Okay, well, maybe there's something in there that might shock you and surprise you and delight you. So, so how about if you read that and we can talk about that? And he said, all right. But he did it in a condescending way, like, fine. Patting me on the head, you know, I'm, okay, I make you happy. Um, and then I realized there might be more people around here who feel the same way. So we went through a couple years of people just going crazy starting to read the Bible. And it was so fun to hear them say, I had no idea. And then people started coming up to me saying, hey, I know you're getting feedback. And I'm thinking, how do you know that? You know, but apparently there was a buzz of too much Jesus, too much Bible. And this person said, you know, um, I know you're getting that, but keep doing it because... Me and my friends, we've now gotten together. We start reading the Bible together and talk about it. And we realized how dumb we were about the Word of God. This woman said, well, I'll look, I should put it in context. I have a degree in history from Stanford University. But when it came to the Bible, I was ignorant. And I'm coming alive in my understanding of God's Word. 
And I, I was just so, that moved me deeply and encouraged me greatly uh, because she was saying, the gospel is what's enough. So he says, this is how you're saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached. So he says, for what I received, now what I received, where did Paul get this? He got it, well, he got it from Jesus. Reinforced by Peter, reinforced by Barnabas, who, who discipled him. I passed it on to you, this is first importance, that Christ died for our sins. He uses the term, the official term, Christ or Messiah. He what Jesus did, but he uses Christ as an honorific, you know, I'm honoring him. Uh, he's the, he's the uh, savior of the world and the Lord of the world. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Whoa, wait, wait, wait. There's a context here? Yeah, the scriptures, the entire Bible. All, Paul's Bible was the Old Testament. Paul said you can't understand the gospel if you don't know the Old Testament. Because my gospel comes out, and he says my because he's personalizing it and that he's committed to it. This gospel, he could say, comes out of a deep historical context that God has been doing something for a very long time. And this Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham and God's promises to Israel. Jesus completes the story of Israel. And then he turns to all of you Gentiles in Corinth and says, guess what, you can be a part of it. See, the gospel is not, you can be saved and here's how. A zillion messages like that cover the planet. You can be saved from anxiety, here's how. You can be saved from, you know, bad breath, here's how. You can be saved from a dateless evening. You can be saved from a bad investment. You can be saved from whatever. Here's how. That's not the gospel. The gospel is Jesus is Lord who brings all of God's promises to fulfillment and completes the story of Israel. And guess what? You don't have to be a Jewish son or daughter of Abraham to participate in this. It's for you. Here's how. So Paul wants them to know this powerfully or else they're going to lose their way. I'm a Corinthian. I'm a Roman citizen. I'm this socioeconomic status. You're not. So he says, this is what I passed on to you, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, again, according to the scriptures. Not yet, our tradition is, forget your tradition. Go to the scriptures and then realign your tradition with that. A tradition is the burned out embers of somebody else's fire. A living tradition is that we're kindling a fire that somebody else started, but we're keeping it going because it's just exactly what we need. We warm ourselves by it, we cook with it. See, that kind of tradition is powerful. But Paul's saying, let's not get into traditions and styles and perspectives. Let's get back to what do the scriptures say. And then he says he appeared to a bunch of people. Uh, he uses Paul's, uh, Peter's uh, Aramaic name, um, Kepha. And then to the 12, he said, after that, Jesus appeared to more than 500 uh, of the brothers and sisters at the same time. A bunch of people in the same place most of whom are still around, though some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as, one, as to one abnormally born. That is, Paul is ranting and raving against Jesus on a tear to persecute and, and imprison followers of Jesus. Comes to know Jesus in this incredibly miraculous way. He said, it's like I was in the womb too long. It was like, I, you know, most babies are born in nine months. It took me two years or something. I mean, you know, he's saying, finally I came around and understood what, what I was persecuting. And he says, you know, for I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. You see that confession in there? My true identity is rooted in Christ. 
and his kingdom. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. So then he says this, whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach. And this is what you believed. He's making a claim for the gospel that trumps all other claims. Cultural claims, denominational, non-denominational claims, stylistic claims, etc. Claims that are fueled by a lack of confidence in God's word, uh, or, or that are fueled by an overconfidence in my understanding of God's word. Instead he's saying, let's come back to the, to the text and put that in context. This is why the early church started coming up with shorthand ways of summarizing this. One is called the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. A bunch of you have probably memorized that. As they started to understand more about the fact that Jesus was both God and man, wow, okay, not just a superman, but he was fully God, fully man. They got together and said, let's update the Apostles' Creed, and they came up with, they met in a place called Nicaea, Cappadocia, I think, and they, and, and, uh, they said, well, the, the, the Nicene version of what we've been saying is this. It builds it out a little bit more. So these, these, these what they call confessions or creeds were simply shorthand ways of summarizing without losing what the scriptures said. Why am I saying all this? Because if you don't get this, you will have no self-awareness. Because you don't know where you come from, to whom you belong, and where you're going. Your self-awareness will be shaped by your culture. You shouldn't feel that. You should feel this. You shouldn't believe. You should believe that. Your self-awareness will be shut down and minimized. It will gravitate towards self-delusion or self-absorption, self-denial. Really, it'll land finally in a place called self-preservation. I just got to hold it together. Self-awareness is that sense that, dear God, you made me for a purpose. You love me. Nothing can separate me from your love. You tell me the truth about me, and sometimes it makes me cry. But you lift me out of my shame, and you show me where we're going. And you reveal to me the fact that these circumstances that I am pushing back against and so frustrated with, um, they matter, but not that much. What matters more is that you're with me in this situation. You're taking me beyond the situation. You see the power of this? Talk about freedom. Uh, you go to a rave, you are not free. Right now, in the high-tech world, uh, there's this sense among, uh, I mean, this is a, a documented thing. I'm not telling you some rumor, some, some myth, or conspiracy theory. I'm just telling you what high-tech leaders are telling us about how they function, and now it's documented. And he asked Elon Musk, Elon, how do you get through a day? Ketamine. A lot of ketamine. Because it opens up my head and it helps me. Uh, there's a shamanistic movement, uh, you know, basically some holy person who says, I can help you have a hallucinogenically better life. Ayahuasca ceremonies where you drink uh, um, some stuff and it makes you throw up miserably for a few moments and you, 24 hours of euphoria. There are people whose whole job supporting the tech industry are facilitating psilocybin, magic mushroom sessions. This is a documented thing. Why is it happening? There's no self-awareness. There's no self-awareness anchored in reality. All there is is the awareness that I'm really talented, I'm really smart, I'm creating some amazingly useful things, making a lot of dough, but I don't know who the hell I am, basically. And I went to Burning Man, and that was fun for a while, but that kind of got old, so now I'm down in Ecuador, and then I'm going over here, and then I'm, 
And you think, why? What? This makes no sense. No, it makes perfect sense. If you don't believe in Christ, it's, it's not that you believe in nothing. It's that you believe in everything. Everything becomes something that you want to cling to. Why does this matter? Because if you're bored out of your mind and you believe in Jesus, instead of saying, what am I missing that he's trying to give me? We say, ah, this isn't working. I need to go supplement it over here. And I've had talks with rational people, smart people, well-intended people, people who want to live passionately, and they're telling me, you don't even understand, Steve. This opened up my head, man. This made me feel more alive, more clear. And the irony is that some of what they're saying is true. It does make it more clear, but it's not sustainable, and it's not rooted in reality. It's separating you from your true self, which is only found in Christ. So whether then it is I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believe. So the, the gospel is the good news that Jesus is Lord and King, as I said, fulfills Israel's story, and now fulfills ours. We made it so small because we've, just, we've, we've cut off the Old Testament, it's old and irrelevant. We've cut off the New Testament because that's kind of confusing. We've reduced it to Jesus is an awesome dude. And there's a whole bunch of other stuff I need to go find to make myself uh, functional in life. Peter described it this way. This is how, you know, how do we respond to this good news? Well, we, we, we believe it, we receive it, we turn toward Jesus, that's called repentance. And then we start to grow into it. And Peter described it this way. Peter, whose gospel was the basis um, for the book of Acts, and, and um, for most of the gospels, actually, because Peter's influence as a leader fired up Matthew and, and Mark and, and Luke and Paul to say, we, we're on board. He says in First Peter, like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. A few weeks ago we had a, a granddaughter born. Uh, it was such an amazing thing, wonderful thing. The parents were so happy. We all just left the baby at the hospital and went on vacation for a few weeks. We're going to check in along the way. If there's a high school graduation, we'll find out where. We'll go to that. No. This, this young couple has no idea how to not stop looking at the baby and go get some sleep. They don't want to miss. They're, they're in a FOMO mode right now. They're fear of missing out. This baby might say or do something that's awesome. And you know how it is. If, you, if you've had kids, you, you go... This is the, this, check this picture out. Oh, that's the 90th picture in three days. I don't see a lot of change in the baby. Oh, you don't, no, no, no. See, in this one, and you're thinking, oh my gosh. So the intensity of this, the intimacy of this, the dependence, the deep nurture, this is what is for us. This is how we get self-aware. <laughs> it's powerful. Uh, the baby sleeps and eats, and somehow growth is natural. Nobody has to hold the little feet and little hands and stretch her. You know, she's just like this vertical growing curve. She speaks two languages. She cooks. She plays, you know, instrument. No, you know, and, and they have all these wonderful dreams. It's nothing but delight. And this is a little baby that, without their help and care, is going to perish. This is who we are. But our loving Heavenly Father leans in close and says, I'm going to nurture you. And I'm going to allow you to go into situations that you're going to freak out because you're going to think it's too big and scary. But I will be with you. He's not a helicopter parent. He's a wise and loving parent who says, I'm going to help you grow. And so he says, uh, Peter says, 
as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to God, you also, like living stones, are being built into a temple of the Spirit to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Oh, this is a Jewish thing, right? No, it's more than a Jewish thing. This is a creation thing. They would have heard this and read this and said, yeah, I'm a Gentile, so the Jewish thing with the temple doesn't really resonate with me. Ah, but you were created by God, and when he put you in that garden, he put you in there as a priest. He put you in there as a, as a person to nurture all creation. He put you there as a place to be filled with his spirit and to partner with him in his development of this world. So you see, he's taking us not back to, oh, we should be Jewish. He's taking us back to, oh, this is who we were intended to be at creation. For in Scripture it says, see, uh, he's quoting from Isaiah now, I, I lay a stone in Zion, just a fancy name for Jerusalem, for Israel, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in me will never be put to shame. Isaiah the prophet saying, folks, something good is coming. God is, is going to keep his promises. Stay focused. Now Peter says, now to you who believe, this stone is precious. You get the value of Jesus' the stone. But to those who do not believe, and now he quotes Psalm 118. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The one they needed to make the building work, they'd set aside and didn't think it was worth anything. And then he quotes Isaiah, another part of Isaiah. He says, and a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. You know, a stone in the right place is a step. A stone in the wrong place makes you stumble. God is ordering his creation. So this is, this is the message here from Peter. He's ordering you, your world. He's putting it together. So as a baby hungers and thirsts for that, that, that uh, pure milk, so go and do likewise. Later they say, hey, enough milk, you're ready for solid food. But the analogy holds true. Continue to grow. Not more, but a quality of life that only God can help us experience. It says they stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. This is often read in a confusing way that, oh, some people are destined, God makes them stumble. No. What it is is behavior has consequences. I told you not to touch the stove. And so you're destined uh, to have a hard, hard fall if uh, in the middle of your marriage you're still dating somebody else. If you're taking your client's money and you're using it for other purposes than what they, that they gave it to you for. If you're using your position of leadership to abuse and misuse power. If you are filling people's minds with lies and half-truths because it's convenient for you. You see where this goes? You're destined to fall. It, life does not work apart from the self-awareness that God alone can provide. Some friends who are, th I've had a number of friends who are therapists tell me that often people come in to their practice as atheists and leave with this, this, this developing sense of um, wanting to know God. And I say, what do you think that is? Because it's not like you're talking about God in the therapy sessions. They'll say, no. It's just that when people start to move some of the baggage and debris out of the way, they realize they have a deep hunger and yearning for God. Then some people, they, I've heard therapists tell me that people who have a faith come in and say, I, I, I've had this faith, I grew up in a faith, I am an atheist. And the therapist will say, okay, let's start there. And all of a sudden, at some point, that person says, atheism isn't adequate. Atheism was a way of expressing my anger that life isn't working. So I'm saying to you is it's not, can you get the right spiritual practices and I don't know, or if I go to the right church, no. I'm saying if you are growing in Christ, you become self-aware and all things open up to allow you to 
Be who you are, where you are, for the purpose you were created and saved. And so that's why Peter can say this. You are a chosen people. You're not an accident. You were chosen by God. A royal priesthood that people set apart to serve and to lift others up into the presence of God, to guide them in a relationship with God. A holy nation, God's special possession. You know, this is what's beautiful about a, a child in a parent's arms. The parent would say, I would die for this kid. They're my special possession. Not as in I own them and control them, but I would do anything for this child. Guess what? God said the same thing, and God did the same thing. When, when asked, you know, if you were to stand in Jesus' presence and say, how do I know you really love me? He would just go, I loved you this much. And you go, oh, I, I think I understand. Why are you a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession? That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness, the darkness within you and the darkness around you, into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, you were on your own. You were in a crowded room, but you were alone. Now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That makes me tingle reading this or hearing it read. So by God's mercy, we have a new identity as his people. Flawed, broken, fallible, good intentions. Uh, they say the road to hell is paved with those. I've contributed mightily to that process. But people loved by God, considered by him so valuable, he died for them and doesn't want anything to rob them of the life they were created for. So God chose Abram to bless the world. We're recipients of that blessing now fulfilled in Christ. He's restoring us to our true identity if we're open and responsive. And for what purpose? That we may declare his praises. Well, that sounds like a pretty lame payoff to me. Oh, that sounds super great. That sounds boring. No, it's not. No, put it in a larger context, a different context perhaps. It's not odd, it's natural. We're wired for this. We express it whenever we're feeling alive and present in the moment. We praise. We lift our hands. We call out. We participate. We enter in. We lose ourselves. We're transported. And that's why they're called Swifties. If you're a Bruno Mars fan, your fandom tag is hooligans. If of a previous generation, and, or, you've been, or in your younger years now, you're being corrupted by a previous generation, you are a deadhead. If you're a sports fanatic, you might be a cheesehead. Uh, if you're a Southern Californian, you might say, fight on, I'm a Trojan. Uh, if you're one of those truly uh, committed people out in the middle of nowhere in Texas somewhere, you are the 12th man. You know, so it goes. Uh, if, you, if you think of fandom titles, they're, they're hysterical. Raider Nation. I have walked into the Oakland Stadium and thought, if I can get out of here alive, I'm still going to have nightmares because these people look scary, you know? So what happens is, it's like the praise of spectators witnessing a great performance, but it's more than that. That's what we're created for. And that's what we're being called to. We get to praise God. Why? Because there's something so worth praising. We can't hold back. That's why fandom exists. But instead of us being fans of God, we're being called in to be friends of God. This is the powerful thing about it. 
And so uh, when we get connected in community, we feel profoundly alive together. Uh, the kingdom of God is going to have a, like an effect times you know, 10 to the 10th power that any great concert or, or social gathering would have. We get taste of that and glimpse of that along the way. And so why all this? It's because it's the source of our self-awareness. The gospel and this notion that we were meant to, 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 to drink deep and be thoroughly nourished by what God alone can provide. And God uses everything in the world he created. So it's not like, well, that's religious and that isn't. No, it's all okay. Except for the ayahuasca ceremony and the psilocybin and the, because those are artificial versions. Money is an artificial version. Pornography is an artificial version. Multiple sexual partners is, is a perversion of the real version. Dominating other people, living out of anger, all these things are things that minimize versus maximizing our experience of life and our self-awareness. If you are the person who goes to a party and you're self-conscious the entire time because I don't look right, don't feel right, why am I here, nobody likes me, your self-awareness is off the charts because it's no longer self-awareness. All you are is a one-person judge, jury, and executioner. So you see where this goes? It brings us to a place of clarity about who we are, no shame about who we are, and also in the sense that I have hope that God alone can bring me to where I want to go. Final thing I'd say to you is this. Paul wrote to Timothy, and he said, Timothy was his protege. He said, watch your life and doctrine closely. That was the last thing he said in this letter toward the end of the letter. Watch your life and what you believe about Jesus closely. He called it doctrine. Um, the, the Greek word is basically the teachings. He says, persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Now, Timothy was a, a, a burgeoning, growing leader. So this is good for you and for your, your, um, the people you influence if you're watching your life and doctrine closely because there's a big impact and consequence of that. Now, the, the grammar here, right? Watch your life and doctrine closely is called a present imperative active. Do this right now. Do this, be active, be engaged. Do this right now, watch. Not be obsessed with, am I doing something wrong? But just be aware of, hey, I believe this, but I'm doing that. I wonder what that gap is about. It becomes an imaginative way to interact with God and say, God, I believe this, but I'm acting this way. What, what am I missing? Right? That's what self-awareness does. It allows you to be free and say, yeah, this is a big, big problem for me. The shame says, I better not let anybody know about that. The gospel says, I already know about it. Probably every round you knows about it. So just you acknowledge it. See, I'm the first to admit it, but I'm always the last one to know. But when I know, I want to be able to say, Lord, what? How do I? So it's a present imperative active. Do this now. Why? Because if you do this now, you're creating a new and better future. Because the future isn't something you show up at one day. It's what you create one day at a time. And you finally arrive there and go, oh, this is the future I was preparing for the last months or years. And the grammar there is future indicative active. Keep doing this now because as you do, the effect is that you're going to be a different person and you're going to influence people to be different in the best possible way. There's a payoff here. The sleepless nights, the worry, uh, all the challenges of being a parent, and as you're investing in yourself, there's no guaranteed outcome, but at some point you go, oh my gosh, look what happened. This, this little self-reliant person is making decisions to honor and glorify God, hopefully. And if not, they've heard it and they know it and at some point will.
So anyway, this is Jesus' gospel we enter into, that we fully embrace, that we energetically emulate in life. It's not about artificially managing our image, but authentically expressing the image of God in us. It's a very creative act that we get to participate in. And if one way of looking at it is it's, it's a God-given superpower that sets us free to live fully aware wherever we are. So where do we go with this? We go anywhere and everywhere with it. You go right now to the places where you normally go. But there's going to be other, other places God's going to lead you, and you get to take this with you there. When somebody says to you, what, why are you the way you are? And you say, you know what? I'm becoming more self-aware. I have better boundaries. I'm more free to love and receive love. I, I'm, I'm more comfortable telling the truth. I'm, I'm okay with recognizing a conflict and, and respectfully, appropriately seeking to address it and work it through. Uh, I have a sense that I'm me and I can, I can uh, say no to things that threaten who I am or want to minimize or, or reduce who I am. All of a sudden you become a powerful person. Powerful in love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Powerful. Game-changing powerful. Family-changing powerful. Generationally changing powerful. Culturally changing powerful. See, it's Christ's power in you that makes this possible. Don't diminish that power by ignoring it or disdaining it. Rather, simply open your heart and your mind to it. Well, I already believe that. Well, keep doing it. Yeah, but it's not working. Well, then it works. Ask God why it isn't working. Ask some people around you to help you figure out why it's not working and see where it's going to take you. Because you're, you're in a place, maybe it's a plateau, and you're ready to go somewhere else, but you don't know how to get there. We can't do it alone. We do it with God, and God always uses people in the process. So, Lord Jesus, I thank you that you've given us this amazing invitation uh, to come into our right minds and to come into our right hearts and to understand the precious gift that our life is because every day is a gift from you. I thank you, Lord, that nothing that we've done or would do can keep us from your love and that no matter where we are, we can know you and walk with you that you're the God of uh, not just first chances, but second chances and third chances, and you're the God who keeps helping us grow into our knowledge and love of you, of ourselves and one another. So, Lord, we are learning to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and our neighbors ourselves. For this, we thank you and praise you for your gospel, for the gospel of Jesus expressed by so many faithful people. And may we, Lord, not only be recipients of that, but that we learn how to talk about that gospel in ways that others can respond to also. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. This is a time of offering, uh, not, not a uh, financial offering. We, uh, we encourage you to do that. Uh, you can, there's a place you can make, um, put your offering or you can send it in. Uh, but this is an offering of you. You to Jesus. Uh, your world to Jesus. Whatever you're dealing with, uh, make this a time to say, Lord, okay, I'm offering me. What do you want to say to me? Do in me. Do through me. And then we'll wrap up with a, a blessing uh, as we go out into uh, the rest of the day. Let's do that together.
So may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord give you everything you need to walk in newness and fullness of life with him both now and forevermore. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go get something to eat.